The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Or write to Dean Bible Ministries Incorporated. That's at address 5868 Westheimer. W-E-S-T-H-E-I-M-E-R, number 461, Houston, Texas, 77057. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. This is the record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study this evening, we need to make sure that we're in fellowship. Scripture teaches us that the Lord Jesus Christ paid the penalty for every single sin in human history on the cross. When we put our faith alone in Christ alone, we're saved. Sin is no longer the issue in terms of the believer's eternal relationship with God. However, when we sin, we break fellowship, just as when a child is disobedient to a parent, it breaks harmony and rapport within the family. So when we sin, it breaks harmony with God. It stifles the ministry of God the Holy Spirit in His uh, work of sanctifying us, and so it is necessary to recover through confession of sin, which means to simply admit or acknowledge our sins to the Lord, to, uh, our sins to God the Father, and He forgives us instantly, cleanses us from all unrighteousness, and we're restored to fellowship for forward growth in the spiritual life. Before we begin, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that we can come to you this evening knowing that you are the God who is in charge of the details of our lives and that you are the God who is in control of history and that despite the chaos that we see in history as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ operating on your word, we know that you are in control and we can relax and we can trust you and we can take joy in watching how you are working out your plans and purposes even while there are others who are in despair, who are discouraged, who are, uh, feel like the situation is hopeless. Father, we know that you'll give us opportunities to share the gospel and to be a witness for your eternal truth, and we pray that we would be responsive to those opportunities. Now, Father, as we study your word today, we pray that you'd help us to understand the things we study related to salvation, that we may be more accurate in our presentation of the truth. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. 
We're continuing our study on the foundation for life. And biblically, the foundation for life is truth. And whenever you talk about truth today, you run into a problem because there are many people who no longer believe in one absolute truth. In fact, for many people, the very thought that there is one absolute overrolling truth is a concept that is loaded with arrogance. How can you say that you have the truth or that you know the truth? What this system of knowledge or that religious system? How can you claim to be the only truth? There are many truths, and we need to respect everybody's truths. And there's some kernel of truth in that, that there is a sense in which we respect others and their right to believe what they want to believe. But that doesn't mean that there are multiple truths. There are multiple claims to truth, but there is ultimately one and only one truth. And the Bible presents that as residing in the person of God. And so we began our study talking about truth and the importance of truth and that the only way to know an overriding truth is if a representative from God comes and speaks to us, and this was the Lord Jesus Christ. But even before the Lord Jesus Christ appeared at the first advent, God the Father was revealing himself to man through many different ways and methods through the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. And so we had knowledge of God. It may not be a, it's not a comprehensive knowledge of God, which is impossible, but it is a true knowledge of God. And one of the things that is brought out in the Scripture, as we saw in our second study in this series, is that from Genesis to Revelation, truth is exclusive. There is only one truth. And again and again and again, the Scriptures present one and only one way of salvation. And that is personified in the Lord Jesus Christ. In John 14:6, Jesus said, I am the way the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is a bold and profound statement that often strikes unbelievers and sometimes many Christians as the height of human arrogance. They find it extremely offensive that we would say that there are, there's only one way to heaven. If you don't believe in Jesus Christ, you're not going to go to heaven. And there's an eternal condemnation as a result of that. But one of the problems is that most people just don't understand the nature of salvation, the nature of the gospel. And part of that is because too often in our presentation of the gospel, we start at the cross. And we start at the wrong place. We're assuming way too much. If you go back and look, and some of you have gone through this with me before, but if you look at passages such as Acts 14 and Acts 17, when Paul is taking the gospel to unbelievers, he starts with God as the Creator God. He doesn't start with the cross. Now, when he's communicating to Jews or when Peter has a Jewish audience, he starts with the concept of the Messiah because they understand the content of the Old Testament. So when you start talking to a Jew in the first century about God and about sin and about atonement and about redemption, he has a frame of reference for understanding what you're saying. But when Paul went to Iconium and Lystra and Derbe and uh, Ephesus and Athens, he started with, I'm here to tell you about the God who made the heavens and the earth. 
It's not any of these other gods. It is the unique triune God who created everything and who stands over against everything in the universe. And He is unique. And you have to start there with the gospel. And sometimes it takes time. Now we all know that we can uh, witness to some folks and they understand the gospel pretty quickly. Others have talked to them before. But there are many folks that take time. I know of one young man and uh, who was in my church up in Connecticut, and he started uh, dating a young woman in the church. And she said, well, you know, you can't, we, we're not going to date unless uh, you get two things straight. You know, you've got to be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, number one. Number two, the study of the Word and its application in your life has to be the highest priority in your life. If that's true, then we can, we can uh, go out and I'll spend some time with you. And he said, well, wait a minute, what's all this about Jesus Christ? And it took about a, a year and a half, and then one. And he came to church frequently and had conversations with her parents and had conversations with me and, and was consistent coming to class. And it took a year and a half, and one day he said, Well, I trusted Christ about three months ago, but I didn't want to tell anybody because I wanted to make sure that I was going to stick with it. But some people it's easy to witness to is a point I'm making. Others, it's more difficult. And so we have to understand how to present the gospel in different ways to different folks because of the background. But the general principles are the same for everyone. And we have to recognize that to those who resist the idea of one truth, we have to present the whole picture. When you understand the biblical issue of salvation, then you can understand why there is an exclusive claim. But if your starting point isn't with the Creator God, the triune, infinite personal God of the Bible, then you're never going to understand the importance of this exclusivity of the gospel or why there is and only and can only be one way. So we started with God. And that's why we spent time for a couple of weeks talking about the essence of God and talking about the doctrine of the Trinity. And when we looked at the essence of God, we saw that God is a personal God, which means that He has the ability to have a full, personal, intimate relationship with each one of us. Nevertheless, He is at the same time an infinite God. He cannot be contained. He cannot be limited. And the concept of infinity is applied to his life. He's eternal. It's applied to his knowledge. He's omniscient. It's applied to his power. He's omnipotent. It's applied to his presence. He's omnipresent. And it is, he is immutable. He never changes in any of these attributes. But when it comes to understanding how he relates to man, we begin with the fact that he is the sovereign creator. This means that God makes the rules. He designed everything to be the way it is, from the most microscopic detail to the large macro systems. Everything is designed by God to work together within its own system, as well as to interact with all of the other systems in the universe. And this involves not only 
physical laws and realities and chemical laws and realities and biological laws and realities, but also spiritual laws. And he has standards. He is a righteous God. And righteousness refers to the standard of his character, and he is absolute perfection. And it is his character that defines perfection. There's not some external standard that he lives up to. He is the standard. And that's, when that standard is applied to his creatures in terms of his justice, then he is absolutely fair and right in everything that he does because it's consistent with his righteous standard. And because he is immutable, then he applies that standard equally to every creature. And he never changes. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And because he is the God of truth, he is the one who defines reality and is consistent with that reality. And then in his love, he has a relationship with these creatures, mankind, the human race that he created in his image and in his likeness. And so when we begin to explain the gospel or to understand what happened to us when we were saved, the starting point is to understand who God is in terms of his character because salvation foundationally has to do with a relationship with our creator. And so he has the right to uh, reveal who he is and he has a a right to determine and to define the basis for that relationship. So the starting point is God and creation. Furthermore, in his omniscience, the last aspect there, because he's omniscient, he understands every detail in the universe. He understands how all the minutia interacts together. And because he knows how everything operates together, and because he has this universal knowledge, he is able to reveal truth to man in a way that is uh, comprehensive, though it's not exhaustive. And as a result of that, he can communicate truth to man, and it's not arrogant. What we, we have to be careful because in the realm of the creature, we, we talk about uh, making claims of exclusivity, everything, you know, everything. Somebody comes along, they're know-it-all. We immediately think that they're, that they're arrogant, and rightly so. But that's in the creaturely realm. And so don't make the mistake of transferring your understanding of creaturely dynamics to the Creator. For God's ways are not our ways, neither are His thoughts our thoughts. He is above us. He is radically different because He is the Creator. Okay, so we look at why God's way is the only way. And our starting point is to recognize that God created man... And God defined man's nature, function, and limitations. God as our creator defined our nature, who we are, how we're, what our components are, what the immaterial nature of man is, what the material nature of man is. God designed all of the different elements. No one knows us better than God because he made us to be a certain way in order to fulfill certain purposes. That has to do with our function. Man was created in the image and likeness of God, according to Genesis 1, 26 to 28. It's created in the image and likeness of God to represent God and to rule over the creation. We'll see a little more on that in a second. 
And then we have certain limitations because we are finite creatures. We can't know everything. We can learn some things through empiricism. We can learn some things through reason. But we cannot come up with an overarching interpretation of everything because of our limitation. We're dependent upon God because He is the one who is omniscient and created everything. Second point that we see is that the Creator God created man in His own image so that we are to reflect God. And we see this in Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Then God said, Let us make man, that is Adam, meaning mankind, the human race, in our image, according to our likeness. And this has to do with his fundamental nature, that man is, a, in some sense, a finite replica of the infinite personal God. So there are uh, analogous elements to our personality to our personhood that represent God in a finite way. And the purpose was to rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image, and the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. So that we are to represent God. That's the idea of image and likeness. We are set forth as a representative of God to rule over creation. Further, we were created to serve God in this capacity. And in, before we're ready to fully serve God, there was a test to see if man would be obedient and would trust God as God defined creation. And so that test was set up in the garden, and God had provided for every need of man. He provided all of uh, a variety of different kinds of uh, fruit and other uh, vegetables for man to eat, and had every, man had everything he needed, but there was one tree that was the test tree. And God created the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and said, you shall not eat from it, for in the day that you eat of it, you're... You shall surely die. And the idea in the Hebrew there is that you will certainly die. This is a, a, a statement of, an, an emphatic statement of certainty. At that instant, death will enter into this new perfect creation. So man was created to serve God, but there was a test. And, of course, we know the story that they failed the test. And that's our fourth point. Eve failed the test, and Adam followed right along. And we read this in Genesis 3.1. And this is what informs us as to why we need this exclusive salvation. Genesis 3.1 we read, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, and by phrasing the question that way, what the serpent was doing is getting Eve to buy into his agenda and to judge or evaluate God's statement, to put herself over God to determine if God was telling the truth. This is the same thing you find over and over again with uh, many people. They want to determine whether God has told the truth or not. And so they want to put themselves in the place of God. If God speaks the truth, or God is the creator, then he is the one who speaks the truth and defines reality. But in arrogance, man rejects that and constantly wants to configure reality to his own wishes, desires, 
and to his own limited knowledge. And there's not a greater example of that than what we've seen on some of these news reports the last couple of days from these folks who were living down in uh, New Orleans with 10 feet of water in their house and people are coming up in the boats and saying, you need to leave. And they're saying, no, I'm not going to leave. I'm going to stay here. Everything's going to be fine. See, they're, they're totally divorced from reality. They have no knowledge of reality. They are interpreting the flood as if it's every other kind of flood. In a couple of days, everything will be fine and back to normal. And they have no understanding of happened or what the dimensions of this disaster are. And when somebody comes from outside who knows the dimensions of the flood has has the greater information, they reject that on the basis of their own limited knowledge. And that's what so many human beings do is you, God has spoken to man, but they say, no, I'm going to make reality what I think it should be. And that's essentially what Eve did. Satan suckered her into following his agenda and says, did God really say this? He's questioning God's revelation. The woman said to the serpent, well, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it. She's adding to what God said. So she's already shaping truth in terms of her own creaturely frame of reference. You shall not eat it, nor touch it, lest you die. And then the serpent said to the woman, you're not going to die. So he sets up a contrast. You either believe God who says you will die, or you believe me who says you won't. Now that puts her in a position of saying, hmm, who's right? And so she's going to rely upon her own finite knowledge to determine what truth is. And it's in that that she failed. And that led her instantly to decide that the only way to uh, answer that is to have a little experiment and to eat of the fruit. And the instant she did, there was spiritual death. And then she uh, involved her husband, and because Adam was the head of the family and the designated head of the race, when Adam sinned, there was a complete fall, devastating fall, that affected the human race. And this is why there is a need for salvation, because spiritual death enters into the entire human race and beyond the human race to all of creation. See, people too often want to limit sin to some peccadillo, or maybe it's on the other extreme and it's, it's related to just a gross, perverted, uh, heinous acts. But they don't understand that what Sin really is, is a violation of the character of God and an act of the creature where he wants to act independently of the Creator. And the result of that is that it affects the entire fabric of the universe. That there are, there are direct penalties, there's a direct penalty to the sin, which is spiritual death, but then there are consequences that reverberate through all of creation. It affects the relationship of the husband and the wife. It affects uh, childbirth. It affects the biology of the woman. It affects the biology of the animal life on the planet. It affects uh, botany because now there are going to be thorns and thistles that come forth from the ground. It affected meteorology. It affected everything. It just ripped the fabric of physical laws. But God in his wisdom had created everything in such a way that he had built in enough flexibility into the creation to handle the chaos that came from sin. 
But spiritual death entered into the human race, and this is what the New Testament refers to in Ephesians 2, 1 and following. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Ever since Adam, every human being has been born spiritually dead. We are separated from God. We do not have a relationship with God, and the Scripture says that we don't know God. And this concept of being dead in trespasses and sins is further defined in verse 2 and in verse 3 of Ephesians 2, that in this death, this state of spiritual death, you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan. That's a sin. sin is that which is consistent with Satan's original sin, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. And that's all I want to emphasize from this tonight, is that we are by nature children. That is the descendants of wrath. We, it relates to an corruption and the very nature of humanity that affects everyone. And it is such a drastic nature that it prevents anyone from having a relationship with God. We are rendered spiritually dead so that a component of our immaterial nature that allows us to have a relationship with God, which we'll call the human spirit, is no longer operational. And we, in fact, with Adam, it was no longer operational, but with us, we're not born with it. And that is why there has to be a solution that comes from God. The solution cannot come from the human race. The problem of sin is not something that is simple. In fact, there are six different elements to the sin problem. The first is sin itself. It is a violation of the standard of God. And because of that, there is a penalty that must be resolved. That's our second element. The penalty of sin must be paid. Third, there is a problem with the character of God. The character of God is such that he is righteous and just, and his standard must be met so that in his justice he can bless man. Man cannot have a relationship with God until God's character has been, his righteousness has been satisfied. Fourth, we have a problem that man is born spiritually dead. We have a penalty in the second point, but this is the personal individual application. Each of us is born spiritually dead, and that problem has to be resolved. Fifth, we have a problem of a lack of righteousness, and a righteous God can only have fellowship with righteous creatures. Since we don't meet his standard, there has to be a solution to that problem. And then sixth, that we have a lack of eternal life. Sixth point, lack of eternal life. So how is God going to resolve all this? This is the complexity of salvation. This is why there can be one and only one way to have salvation. So let's understand what happened. God is both righteous and just. And he created man in his image and likeness so that man was also righteous and just. And there could be perfect harmony and a perfect rapport between God and the man and his wife in the garden. But at the instant of man's disobedience, 
that harmony, that rapport was broken. God came walking in the garden, and the man and the woman hid themselves, and they realized that they were naked, and they clothed themselves with fig leaves in order to somehow disguise the fact that there had been this, this change. And God came and offered a solution. So what we see is that the relationship between man and God has a barrier, what we call the sin barrier, that is now erected between man on the one hand and God on the other hand. And until this barrier is removed, man cannot have a relationship with God. So this sin barrier itself is comprised of several different elements, those six different problems that I mentioned earlier. Tonight we'll only make a... Uh, start at one of them, or maybe possibly two of them. But the first three that I want to focus on have to do with sin, and then the penalty of sin, and then the character of God. So we'll just start with the first problem, which is sin itself. What exactly is sin? See, a lot of folks have a shallow view of what sin is. They think it's just some sort of overt action. They think about murder, mass murder, genocide, or they may think of racism. They may think of any number of different overt activities which they define as sin. And then because they haven't committed any of those acts, they're basically a good person. If you misdefine sin, you're going to misdefine salvation or the need for salvation. So we have to understand what the Bible says sin is and what God says that sin is. Isaiah 64.6 tells us that all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. So at the very get-go, we have nothing to offer God. He thinks that our very best is nothing more than a pile of filthy Rags that, you know, best illustration I've come up with for this to illustrate its root concept is that if you were to go down to the, uh, well, let's say you were to go down to a medical center and go through their uh, trash pile for all of the discarded bandages and surgical bandages and all of that biohazardous waste, that would probably be better than this. So that's exactly what God thinks of your righteousness. Not your unrighteousness. Remember that. It's it's all those good things that you think somehow are going to cut some ice with God. God says the best that you have to offer is just filthy, moldy, rotten, bloody bandages and garments. It has no value whatsoever. And Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Therefore, none of us has any standing before God. We don't have anything that we can bring to Him or offer to Him that would somehow ameliorate our guilt. So that tells us that if we're going to have salvation, that God is the one who's going to have to provide the solution. Well, we get a little clearer idea of what sin means when we look at the words that are used in the original language. Hebrew of the Old Testament... Greek of the New Testament. The key word in the Old Testament for sin is the word chata. It means simply to miss a mark. It means to fall short of a standard, to miss an absolute standard. And, of course, the very idea of sin implies that there is an absolute standard and that there is a knowable absolute standard that has been violated. 
So the very idea of sin indicates a universal truth or universal standard that man uh, falls short of. This word is used in a number of passages to give us some idea of its importance. It's used in Genesis 4-7 where God is confronting Cain as he is angry with his brother and uh, is thinking all sorts of mental attitude sins and wants to kill him. God says, if you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin, that is this desire to violate the standard of righteousness, is crouching at the door, and its desire is to control you literally, but you must master it. So there's this desire that we have as part of that sin nature that that is to violate the standards of God's righteousness. And it's always God's standard, not human standard. When you sin, it's not against people. Now, you may commit any number of sins that hurt people, but sin, by definition, is a violation of the absolute standard, not your husband or your wives or your friends or some other human standard. We see this in passages such as Genesis 13.13. Now, the men of Sodom were wicked exceedingly, and sinners, what? Against the Lord. Sin is against God, by definition. Genesis 20, verse 6, Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that in the integrity of your heart you have done this, and I also kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. So sin is always against God. No matter what you do, no matter what uh, acts you commit, though you may break human law and you may offend your neighbor, you may hurt and harm others, Sin is a violation of God's standard. Therefore, sin is always against God, and the solution, therefore, can only be provided by God. This is why David prays a prayer of confession in Psalm 51.4, Against you, you only, have I sinned. Now, he had committed adultery. He had conspired to commit murder. He had covered up his com- uh, complicity in these sins. And yet, it was only against God that he committed those sins, but he hurt many other people in the process. But sin is, by definition, only against God. So the basic idea of kata is to miss a mark, to violate a standard. And when it relates to God, it always applies that absolute standard or law. So there is an absolute truth that is violated. Another word that is used is the word pesah, pesha, transgression. And just as kata meant to miss a mark or to miss the target, to fall short of the standard, pesha means to revolt against that standard, to rebel against that standard. That's the idea of transgression, that man doesn't simply miss the mark. It is a revolt against the standard. We're setting up an alternative set of standards instead of God's. Another word that is used in the Old Testament for sin is the word aven, which means iniquity or guilt, and it has the root idea of something that is bent or twisted or distorted. Man wants to redo God's standards. We're going to twist the standard. We're going to recast it in our own, uh, according to our own desire. Then we come over into the New Testament, and the Greek words in the New Testament communicate the same ideas. Hamartia, uh, which is the Greek word, the primary word for sin in the New Testament, means to depart from standards of righteousness. It has the idea of wrongdoing, lawlessness, 
violation of absolute standards. 1 John 3, verse 4 says that everyone who practices sin, hamartia, also practices lawlessness, anomia. And sin is lawlessness. Not human law, but God's law, God's absolute standard. 1 John 5.17 says, All unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin leading to death. Once again, you have the first phrase, All unrighteousness is sin. So sin is a violation of the righteous standard of God. So everywhere we look in the New Testament... And in the Old Testament, we realize that the very concept of sin is a violation of God's standard. Therefore, since it is a violation of God's standard, God must provide the solution. And so the solution to the sin problem is what is called unlimited atonement. The doctrine of unlimited atonement. And actually, it should be understood as a substitutionary unlimited atonement. Now, that's a lot of big words, but we'll break it down a little bit. The idea of atonement is related to reconciliation. Atonement is the idea of bringing opposing parties together. It's an English word that is literally broken down to mean at one meant. That's its derivation. Two things that are brought together to be one, at one meant. There's no, uh, the word atonement is not used anywhere in the New Testament to describe the work of Christ. It is used in the Old Testament, and the English word atonement was coined in order to express this work that is done on the cross where man is brought back together to God. The background for the concept of atonement in the Old Testament comes from the Day of Atonement in the ritual calendar of the nation Israel. The Day of Atonement occurs once a year, usually in late September or early October, according to our calendar. And it is a day when the high priest is to go into the Holy of Holies in the temple and to present a blood sacrifice that is put on the Ark of the Covenant, which was at the center of the holy place in the uh, inner sanctum called the Holy of Holies. And here is a picture of the Ark of the Covenant. An ark is a box. And this was a box made out of acacia wood that was covered over in gold. And in that there is a picture, a shadow image of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. The wood represented his humanity and the gold represented his deity. Now, inside the box were placed symbols of Israel's disobedience to God, symbols of Israel's sin, the broken Ten Commandments, uh, Aaron's rod that budded, and the manna that they uh, rebelled against and and, uh, griped about. And so there was a lid that was placed over the box, and that lid was called the mercy seat. And the word for mercy seat is a word that was related to a doctrine we'll look at later called propitiation. And on top of this lid were placed the images of two cherubs. Cherubs are a type of angel that are associated with the righteousness and the justice of God. And so on the Day of Atonement, the uh, priest would come in with a uh, basin of blood from a lamb that had been sacrificed, a lamb that was without spot or blemish, and he would place that on the 
Ark of the Covenant. And the picture here is that as these angels who represent the righteousness and justice of God look down upon that uh, blood that covered the sin, then they were satisfied. It's a picture of atonement, and as a result, God is atoned. But the focus is on the blood. So we see in a couple of passages, such as Exodus 12.3, where God says, uh, Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month, they are each one to take a lamb for themselves, according to their father's households, a lamb for each household. Now, this refers to an earlier event in Israel's history, at the, basically the same time, just before they were given the instructions for the, um, the Day of Atonement. And this refers to the Passover and what was required. The same imagery holds true for the Passover. You have a lamb that's without spot or blemish. It's a lamb that's without spot or blemish offered on the Day of Atonement. And at, at the Passover, they would take this lamb that was without spot or blemish, and they were to sacrifice the lamb and spread the blood on the doorpost of the house. And in the original historical event, it was the tenth plague as God was trying to... Uh, release Israel, redeem Israel from uh, slavery in Egypt, and he was sending the angel of death. So the firstborn in every household would be uh, taken in death if the blood was not applied. So it's a perfect picture of atonement again. That blood had to be applied, and so as the blood from the lamb that was without spot or blemish was applied to the doorpost of the house, when the angel of death came, he would pass over. Exodus 12, verse 5 goes on to describe the lamb, that your lamb shall be an unblemished male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. And this is the background to understand the statement made by John the Baptist in John 1.29 when he first saw Jesus. He said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Old Testament imagery of the Lamb at Passover and the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement anticipated and foreshadowed the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. And the purpose was to take away the sin of the world, to pay the penalty for the sins of the world. And this atonement is called substitutionary in Scripture. We have passages such as Romans 5, 6. For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for, and the Greek word there is huper plus the genitive. That huper preposition, which we translated for, really means as a substitute. That Christ died as a substitute for the ungodly. Romans 5, 7, For one will hardly die as a substitute for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died as a substitute for us. Not only did he die for us, he died for all mankind. Romans 8.32 says that he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. It is an unlimited atonement. It is to cover the sins of the entire world. World, so that the sins of every human being, whether you believe in Christ or not, every sin is paid for by Christ on the cross. We'll see more of this next time when we study the doctrine of redemption. 1 Corinthians 15.3 For I delivered 
to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And then 2 Corinthians 5.14, For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. In other words, Jesus Christ actually pays the penalty for the sin of every single human being. That is why there can be a free offer of the gospel. That is why sin is no longer the issue. The issue is, have you put your faith alone in Christ alone? The issue is not, why have you sinned? The issue isn't, what sins did you commit? The issue is, what do you think about Jesus Christ? Have you put your faith alone in Christ alone? Only then can we have salvation, because man is incapable of saving himself. Now, this just resolves the first part of the sin problem. It is resolved by the doctrine of unlimited atonement. And next time we'll come back and go through the other elements of this sin barrier in order to gain a greater understanding of all the dynamics of what Christ did. This is why there could be one and only one way to salvation, is because the problem is so complex and so universal that only the God-man who himself was sinless could pay the price for the sins of the world with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to focus on our so great salvation. We pray that you would help us to understand these things, that we might have a greater appreciation for all that you did for each one of us in our salvation. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this evening that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. They're paid for. It's not a matter of what you've done. It's a matter of what he did. And it's a matter of what you're trusting in for your salvation. Scripture says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. At the instant you put your faith alone in Christ alone, God in his omniscience knows what you are trusting in for salvation. And at that instant you are given eternal life. This is your opportunity to determine your eternal destiny. It depends on what you are trusting in for your salvation. Father, we continue to pray for this congregation. We thank you for a place that you have provided for us to meet. We continue to pray that you would guide and direct us in our decision-making. And we also pray for those who are uh, friends and family members of those here who are suffering because they live in the storm area, the damaged area. We pray that you would give us opportunities to minister to these folks and that your grace would be evident to them. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.